This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Today, we're exploring the side effects of an anti-malarial drug which caused many complaints from soldiers who were prescribed the drug while on tour in East Timor and PNG. If it's prescribed to someone with the wrong history, it can have pretty bad consequences, so we thought we'd do a little investigation. But first, we're joined in the studio by the editor of the Medical Republic, Grant Holloway. Hi, Grant. Hello, it's good to be here. So as well as having the joyful task of reading every single word that we ever write, uh, Grant also likes to put together an eclectic mix of stories for the back page. And you've brought us something today uh, on the topic of whales, is that right? That's right. Um, We're going to talk about why whales don't get cancer. Now, you'd think they would because everything that we understand at the moment is that the bigger you are, the faster you grow, the longer you live... Um, means that you have more cells and the more cells you have the more opportunities you have for those cells to mutate and develop into cancers but this doesn't happen for whales and it doesn't happen for many elephants either so uh, we've just been looking at some research into why that might be the case it was done by american researchers at uh, university of arizona and what they did was they analyzed a sample of skin from a particular whale that um, lives in, in, in a particular area off the coast of California. Now, one of the things that they've found is that there's a certain part of the genome which is responsible for essentially cell maintenance, keeping cells healthy. And whales appear, or this whale in particular, um, appears to have a more highly evolved part of that genome. And the second thing that they've discovered is that there are, in fact, um, cancer-suppressing genes. Now, humans do have a cancer, a tumour-suppressing gene, I should say, um, do have that. But elephants have got 20 copies of that. And it looks like whales also have many, multiple, multiple copies of this. So it does seem that Whales and elephants and other larger animals are able to develop um, to the size and live for you know good long ages um, because of these these aspects of um, of their genomic makeup. So, is there any hope that we might be able to biohack this and steal some of these cancer avoidance properties for humans? Well, absolutely. That's the reason that the researchers are doing this. So, put simply, if you look at and trying to understand how those gene, how those genes and cell processes work in animals like whales, and that we may potentially be able to apply that to either gene therapies or to cancer treatments. But I wouldn't be holding your breath. Uh, it's it's early work. Well, that's absolutely fascinating research, and I, I'm glad we've got someone reporting on the whales for the Medical Republic. Thank you. And that means it's time for this week's hot topic. This week we've got Dr. Danielle McMullen, a GP and the AMA New South Wales Vice President. Yeah, so today I'm going to talk to you about uh, employment conditions for GP registrars across Australia, so people training to be general practitioners. Um, And this has come up as part of AMA policy this year because we've recognised that there's really a significant inequity between general practice trainees and other non-GP specialties. And and 
Over the past two years, so for the second year running now, we've seen an undersubscription of general practice training in Australia. So there's spaces for GP registrars that haven't gone filled, um, which really means that doctors are turning their noses up at this uh, rewarding and critically important career pathway. Um, so we've really tried to pick apart why that's happened. Uh, and we think that one of the contributing factors is the inequity of employment models between general practice training and other specialty training programs. Now look, it's not all about the money. We know that GPs, um, that general practice across the board is underfunded um, and we know that GP registrars do take a significant pay cut often when they've moved from a hospital spot into general practice, but it's really more about some of the other employment conditions. So in general practice training at the moment, you have to renegotiate a contract every six months. Um, and so that means you know, it's time consuming for both registrars and practices, but also because you've got a new employer and a new contract every six months, it means there's no entitlement to any maternity leave, it means things like sick leave and annual leave don't accrue. So you don't have access to anything more than two and a half days of sick leave every six months. Um, and that really puts general practice registrars at a disadvantage. Um, so we hope that we can enter some negotiations about potentially finding a way for general practice registrars to have a single employer uh, and so they can under enter into a duration of training contract um, so they can sign up at the beginning of their two years and be able to feel secure in the knowledge that they've got leave entitlements, that they have stable employment um, for the duration of their training. So we journalists love connecting the dots, and Francine's been spending a couple of weeks on an investigative news story that does just this. So I'm so excited to hear about this story. What did you find out? Yeah, so it's a bit of a dodgy drug story in some respects, and it's not a dodgy drug story in terms of its efficacy, because it's an anti-malarial mefloquine, and it actually works quite well in stopping malaria. Uh, but there is a big twist about this drug and that is that it has many neuropsychiatric effects in certain groups of people that take this medication. So how did this story come to light? Okay so a few months ago it was Anzac Day and I was sitting and I was watching a soldier give testimony he had served in East Timor in the late 90s into the early 2000s and he was talking about the fact that he had sustained a brain injury from a pharmaceutical product that he was taking while deployed. I thought that this was quite interesting, first of all, that he called it brain damage. So basically, I had done a bit of research and this gentleman had sustained uh, chronic headaches, dizziness, severe depression and anxiety from taking an anti-malarial whilst in active service. And he's not the only one. So I called up the Department of Veteran Affairs. They have over 60 65 active claims against the Australian government at the moment seeking uh, financial support, soldiers believe, as injuries sustained from taking these drugs while in active duty. And doctors are still prescribing these drugs to patients right now. Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't a drug that has been struck off the TGA in any respect. It actually makes up one of four of the anti-malarials that you can prescribe to travellers. So what are those anti-malarials? Yeah, so there's four main anti-malarials that GPs would know about and possibly prescribe. 
The first one, doxycycline. Uh, that's essentially an antibiotic and it is quite common. It's used to treat a range of bacterial infections, pneumonia, chlamydia, cholera, even syphilis, you name it. Basically, it's mixed with quinine and it becomes an effective antimalarial treatment. The problem with this is that it is a daily tablet. So while it's uh, quite effective in some uh, people, if you're going for a very long time, such as if you're a soldier being deployed for multiple years, it can be quite annoying if you have to take a daily tablet. Uh, the second one that is quite well known, sold under the brand name Malarone. Malarone is also daily and essentially you can get some side effects of sickness. But again, the, the main thing is that it's a daily pill. There's a third one, which is actually quite new in Australia and was trialed at the same time that mefloquine was also trialed. It's called uh, tefenoquine. And there's a twist to this because you actually have to do a blood test before you prescribe it to anyone. And the reason for that is because you have to first establish that a patient has normal uh, enzyme levels of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase activity. And the reason for that is because if you don't have those levels and you prescribe this antimalarial, it can shoot their red blood cells through the roof, which, speaking to travel doctors, I believe that you can almost get malaria-like fever symptoms uh, when your red blood cells uh, go up like that. So it can also be a little bit of a problem. And then that brings us to our fourth one, which is taken weekly, which is why it is so attractive in the first place. And that is larium or um, mefloquine. And what you're saying that some doctors prescribe it to children because it's a bit easier to take? Uh, with the others, as I was saying, they're daily tablets. So that can be a little bit annoying, particularly in children or even adults. I don't want to <laughs> say that there's not adults out there that don't hate taking tablets. So yeah, sometimes it makes more sense to prescribe someone a drug that they will take, which may be in the weekly form, especially if they're going to in a malaria affected zone of the world. But the big caveat with this is that it is particularly dangerous for anyone who has any type of history of seizures, of uh, mental health, anxiety, depression, or even a family history of mental health disorders. And does it get worse if you're in a really traumatic situation where people are firing guns at you, like war? <laughs> that is one of the major problems. And as we already know, the, a job or a career in the Defence Force can already be quite stressful and bring out some of those mental health problems. So then on top of that, to have a drug prescribed to a certain group of people that are already predisposed to that, it can be adding on... Uh, to a situation that is traumatic and then a drug that may exacerbate those conditions as well. So are these side effects long-lasting? It's funny that you bring that up because there was a Senate inquiry that was published last month which was actually addressing these complaints from veterans. One of the things that came up is that some of the people complained of suffering almost these prodromal symptoms in a way. Uh, these prodromal symptoms included having abnormal dreams, nightmares and insomnia and there is one expert that I talked to in the US who's an advocate in adverse effects of antimalarial drugs and he believes that had the drugs been stopped at the onset of those first um, warning signs then it most likely would have not advanced to the much worse side effects that we see at the moment so unfortunately they are chronic so people have ocular side effects vision problems intense headaches dizziness and then also depression and anxiety 
can be um, forever as well. And it's quite debilitating. We had a lot of people that left the Defence Force over these claims. Many people feel as if they were not warned about the severity of these side effects when they were prescribed this drug in in the Defence Force and that potentially there wasn't enough significance placed on individualised medicine in the prescription of these travel drugs. So why didn't they just stop taking them? I think a major thing to mention is that while this drug was already listed in Australia for use, the Australian Defence Force, so I believe it was just over 2,000 soldiers that were in deployment in East Timor and PNG, they were actually forming a part of a trial into the use of these anti-malarials. The problem with this and something that is actually been discussed by the Australian government in a Senate inquiry is that the Australian Defence Force now needs to revise their guidelines on human testing in the Defence Force. One of the major concerns of the soldiers was that because they were in an employment contract with Defence at the time of being prescribed these uh, drugs, essentially they feel as if they were coerced uh, and that they weren't given enough information and that they couldn't say no to partaking in the trial. So are we experimenting on Australian soldiers? Is that what you're saying? Well, I can't speak to any uh, current studies that are being undertaken, but certainly this was a study that was being undertaken and people who were receiving this drug were forming a part of a clinical study during the East Timor tour. So what happens next with this inquiry? So that's a great question. It's now a question of uh, compensation for a lot of these soldiers that have come forward. The government so far has committed $2.1 million in ongoing support and looking at ways that they can resolve this issue. They've also set up a hotline for anyone that feels as if they have been exposed to adverse side effects uh, while taking this drug during their employment with the armed forces. One thing that I want to bring up, though, is that A lot of people are prescribed this drug and will have no side effects, uh, just like any drug, but it's important that people who are prescribing are aware that if someone has a predisposition to mental health disorders, they should really be avoiding uh, this drug. So do you think enough doctors are aware that this is a problem? You know, I really don't think it is, and that is why I actually started looking into this the way that I did. I became aware of it, as I was saying, I was watching this soldier who was giving testimony and then someone who used to know someone that I used to know and they had gone on a trip to North Africa and essentially they had to cut their journey short and come home earlier than they'd expected. And the reason for that is that they'd started experiencing these symptoms which were incredibly similar to what I had already read was happening with these people in the armed forces And it really just got me thinking, in their story, they had said that they actually thought that being away from home had triggered, you know, this anxiety within them. And they had seen a GP who had prescribed them an anti-malarial. So my first question was, what anti-malarial were you prescribed? And it turned out that it was the same anti-malarial, mefloquine, which is consistent with what was prescribed with the Australian Armed Forces cases. Did you solve their medical problem by identifying that? I'm definitely not a doctor in any way, shape or form. I'm purely a journalist. But I think when I was able to pass on some of this evidence 
it was striking how the symptoms experienced were totally consistent with what is outlined in the product information on the TGA. Again, there's a lot of people that will not have any reaction to this drug other than being really well protected from malaria. So it's not to say that it shouldn't be prescribed in any circumstances. It definitely is very suitable for some people. But the main thing is that uh, that history is a really important part of any pre-travel consult, uh, according to all the travel doctors that I was talking to. And then on top of that, one of the biggest problems is that when people are traveling overseas, they don't have access to check up with their GP and say, hey, I'm having these like weird dreams at night or I can't sleep at all. That can be a problem because they can let these symptoms go on and on and they won't connect it with the drug. So it's even not a bad idea if there is a way that GPs can supply a contact email that people who are prescribed this drug can get in touch with them while they're away so that they can notify if they have any of these symptoms and then the GP can work out whether it's consistent and whether they need to switch drugs or stop or take the chance. Thank you so much, Francine, for sharing that investigative story, really connecting the dots there. That was really interesting. Yeah, no worries. It really makes you think twice about reading the product information of every single drug that you're prescribed. Absolutely. Are you passionate about the potential of technology, but frustrated by its complexity and untapped potential in primary care? Wild Health is a one-day summit happening in Sydney on the 25th of June that brings together healthcare professionals and informatic experts in order to tackle the biggest issues facing digital health. This is your chance to hear from and question Australia's thought leaders, innovation mavericks, key decision makers and contrarians from inside the digital health sector and beyond. Participate in a day of engaging, meaningful debate and discussion. At Wild Health, you'll hear from the directors and leaders of GP software patient management systems like Best Practice and MediRecords. Check out our full agenda and get your ticket at wildhealth.net.au. Wild Health, because innovation can't be tamed. Now it's time for our favourite, and it's that super weird part of the program, quirky history. Of course, nobody in their right mind would volunteer to have mustard gas tested on them. After all, it causes horrific chemical burns on exposed skin and uncontrollable bleeding in the lungs when it's inhaled. And that's probably why the army didn't bother asking for consent from the soldiers it exposed to it in Panama in 1942. There's some reports that the soldiers were grouped by race, uh, which is quite sinister, and they think that this was to look at testing the mustard gas against what would be the enemy in the Pacific at the time. Um, so it was based on kind of very old-fashioned um, scientific principles. It seems so weird that they would test this on their own soldiers if they knew that it was going to be toxic. What was the rationale, do you know? Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to work this out um, for certain because the Pentagon has gone to extreme lengths to kind of keep this uh, as secret as possible and the survivors from these experiments, they'd now be well into their 90s. So their accounts are what we have for most of the evidence. 
I wonder whether they knew how toxic it was because it just seems strange to expose your own troops to something that's so horrifically awful. Yeah, exactly. So these experiments happened in Panama. So so many people have speculated that the main reason for testing was to work out the efficacy of the mustard gas in tropical conditions because that's what they needed to mirror the conditions that the soldiers would be in in the Pacific. Uh, so about 1,200 recruits over many weeks uh, were asked to strip. They were put in a wooden chamber and they were doused in this mustard gas. Um, but unfortunately, it turns out that mustard gas actually works really well in tropical heat. Uh, and one survivor says that everyone was screaming in pain as the chemical burnt through their skin. And some people were pounding on the walls, demanding to be let out. But the doors uh, were continued to be locked and they were only opened once the experiment was up. Uh, they were apparently treated straight away, but of course, you, when you've been doused in that amount of chemicals, uh, your prognosis couldn't be that great. Did anyone die? Uh, the story only broke in 1993, uh, so that's more than 50 years later, and only a few survivors could be located for compensation. So people died supposedly at the time of the experiment uh over the subsequent years from complications of the experiments uh some though did live to old age uh because they would now be in their 90s so apparently it was sold to the test subjects as an assignment from the military so i mean back in those days and still today if you're given an assignment it's usually totally confidential but then on top of that they the soldiers were told that they would never be able to speak about this and unfortunately if you uh, break one of those uh, directions from your superiors there's always the threat that you can go to prison um, when you're a soldier that's completely unbelievable I can't imagine that happened regularly did it in history uh, I hate to tell you, but I also saw about a dozen other experiments that were carried out by the US military, not all on their own soldiers. Some were actually tested on civilians. Uh, but this was one that I found particularly interesting because it was done on their own troops. And it was quite gruesome. And the US military uh, was approving it at the time. Um, but maybe I'll bring you some other uh, in a future episode. Wow, that's absolutely terrifying. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Next time, we're talking about the thing we know most, if not all of you have done before. It's not talking or breathing, it's uh, self-prescribing. Should there be tougher rules on doctors being able to treat themselves? And what are you missing out on by never getting into the patient role yourself? Uh, But before we bring you that episode, we've got our bonus episode next week. Uh, It's going to be about life in Antarctica as a GP registrar. So don't forget to chat to us. We're on Twitter. I'm at Frankie Crimmins, Felicity's at Frogs and Stars, or you can email us. I'm Francine at medicalrepublic.com.au. And I'm Felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au. That's all from us. Catch you next time. Bye.